Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to read the last three verses of Galatians chapter 2 as we begin to look at Galatians chapter 3. So Galatians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 19 to 21. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray again. Father, we pray as we look into your word that you would be pleased to, first of all, draw our hearts to your son, to see him and his work for us at Calvary and indeed his work for us now, that we might trust him more, follow him more closely that our lives might display him to a world in need because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do a little review as we get started. As we've noted before, Galatians has a very straightforward outline. Chapters 1 and 2 are biographical. Uh, Paul is defending his apostleship and the message of the gospel that had so changed his life. Chapters 3 and 4 that we're going to begin today, in 60 verses, Paul will lay out and defend justification by faith through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And then chapters 5 and 6 are practical. Paul will show that sanctification, which is the power of the gospel to change lives, is also by faith. A quick review of chapters 1 and 2, Paul's defense of his apostleship and message. They're attacking his message by attacking his apostleship. And so Paul does his defense by giving a brief biography of his life and ministry. He begins with his previous life in Judaism. And he says, my life was marked by zealous self-effort to... uh, Please God, to be acceptable to God and by fanatical persecution of the church. There's nothing in my message of the gospel that came from that. And then he talks about his conversion, how on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to Paul and called him to his apostleship. He says, I I went from there out to the desert of Arabia where uh, the Lord Jesus revealed to me the significance of his work on the cross and who he was. And then he comes back to Damascus and he preaches in the synagogues, uh, preaching that Jesus is the Christ and proving that he's the Christ. So much so that they, they had to lower him in a basket uh, down the wall because people were seeking to kill him. Then he talked about two trips up to Jerusalem. Did, did the apostles give Paul his message? Is that where he got it? No, he says, my first visit was three years later after I've already been preaching this message in Damascus. I went up. I was only in Jerusalem for 15 days. Again, I was preaching. Again, they wanted to kill me. And so they, 
they said, you need to, to get out of town, Paul. And so he went to Tarsus. And then his second visit, eight years after that, after he had been brought by Barnabas down to Antioch to help with the work there, Barnabas and Paul went up to Jerusalem carrying a gift from the church at Antioch because there was a famine in Jerusalem, in Judea, to help the, the saints there that were struggling. And Paul says, I met with the apostles, John and Peter and, and the Lord's brother James. They didn't add anything to my message. They didn't modify my message. They recognized my message as, as genuine. And they recognized my apostleship from Jesus Christ. And they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And then lastly, he, he mentions his rebuking of Peter uh, when Peter came down to Antioch and didn't line up with the, the gospel because he had been eating with the Gentiles. But when some of those that said, listen, Gentiles have to be circumcised, they have to keep the law to really be saved, came down, Peter began to separate himself from the Gentiles. And so Paul had to... Um, confront him to his face. And it's really that um, rebuking of Peter that sets the stage for Paul's admonition to the Galatians at the beginning of this section that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, he's going to uh, give an admonition to the Gentiles. Now, an admonition is where you confront someone with the scriptures. It's partly a rebuke. It's partly an exhortation. It's partly an encouragement. And so he's going to confront the Galatians uh, about their activities. Peter was condemned because his actions did not live up to the truth of the gospel. And he knew the truth that he wasn't lining up with. And so the Galatians um, also are, are not living up to the truths of the gospel that Paul had taught them. Paul gives a, a wonderful synopsis of the gospel in verse 19 uh, or 20 of chapter 2. We're dead to the law because of our, our identification with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. And that action continues on. We are dead to the law because we've been crucified with Christ. But because Christ was raised from the dead, we share in his resurrection life he comes to live in us, and we're alive to God because Christ is living in us. And then thirdly, he points out that trying to add the need for works to the work of Christ nullifies the grace of God. Because it's no longer a gift, it's no longer all by God's grace. You know, the problem with adding works to Christ is gradually Christ gets diminished and the works get enlarged. And the value of the works get enlarged. And so Paul sets the stage by, because you know those, those, remember, this was a letter. There weren't chapters. They didn't take it piecemeal. It would have been read all at one time. So verses 19 to 21 were still ringing in their ears as he began to open uh, chapter 3. The Galatians we're being urged to add works to faith, to keep the Mosaic law in addition to faith in Christ as grounds of acceptance before God. The Judaizers said this way, the Galatians would receive a more complete salvation and a greater sanctification. 
Last week after uh, speaking, having some conversations with people, a, a topic came up um, that um, was shared with me where they said, you know, some people say the law in Galatians is the ceremonial law. Uh, the different requirements of what you could eat or not eat, the keeping of the Sabbath. It is not the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And so they teach that we're dead to the ceremonial law, but we still have to keep the Ten Commandments. We still have to keep the, the moral um, law of God. We're required to keep that. Galatians 2, 19 and 20 says, when I come to Christ as my Savior, I died to the law, both the ceremonial and the moral Mosaic law. The law can no longer condemn me. Because I'm dead to the law, God has declared me righteous. He's given me the righteousness of God because not only did Christ die for my sins and I'm identified with him, and so in his death I died, but the life of Christ is now accredited to my account, and I live, uh, and he lives within me. And so the law can no longer condemn me. I have been declared eternally righteous by God. So what does it mean Christ lives within me? When a person receives Jesus Christ as his or her, his or her Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell uh, in their lives, and Christ lives in his or her life. The standard of life is no longer keeping the Ten Commandments. The standard is now Christ-likeness. It is not living according to the Ten Commandments, like it says up there, uh, do not steal. When my daughter was dating... And if, if she came to me and she says, hey, I've met a young man I'm really interested in, I'd say, okay, what's he like? If she had said to me, he's not a thief, <laughs> that would not please me. I would like a little higher standard, okay? Um, in, instead of um, being known for the negative, I'd rather have him be known for the positive. Why would we want to live right across the border from sin? Why would our goal be, well, I haven't stepped over the border into sin. I'm on this side of the border. No, Jesus Christ calls us to go higher up and farther in. And, and he does that. He makes that possible because he lives within us. Um. In John 1, John says, we've seen and our hands have handled the word of life. We have seen the eternal life. What were they saying? They were saying, we saw a life where God came in a human body and lived amongst us. It was a life that reflected the character of the eternal one, of God. And God says, Jesus Christ says, that's the life I want to give you. Um, and so instead of steal, do not steal, Ephesians 4.28 reflects this kind of life. He who steals must steal no longer. There's not crossing the border, but listen how it goes on. 
but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so he'll have something to share with the one who has need. See how the higher plane? I don't want you just living so I come to you and you say, hey, I'm not a thief. No, I reflect the character of God. God is generous and gives. Christ has worked in my life so I don't steal. I work hard to have substance with a heart that wants to be generous and give to those in need that God brings across my path. That's, that's that life that Christ wants to live within us. Or, or the, uh, the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness, do not lie. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up a person according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace or be a gift to those who hear it. That's the kind of life we're called to. That's the standard. Not don't lie. Speak the truth in love and let your words be wholesome so much that they meet the need of the moment and people look back on them and say, that was such a gift. That's God life, that's eternal life. And Jesus calls to us, come follow me. Paul goes on, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This eternal life, this Christ likeness can only be lived by faith. And later when we talk about chapters five and six, that's what they're all about. 2 Peter 1.4, after talking about the Lord Jesus who called us according to his own glory and excellence, his, his deity and, and his perfect humanity, goes on to say, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You might reflect this life of God through Christ-likeness lives, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. See, and what Paul's going to emphasize is Christ-likeness can never be achieved by the efforts of the flesh. Jesus Christ calls us to follow him, and trusting his promises of help and supply, we follow him. Satan and the world and the flesh want to reduce Christianity to checking boxes. Did I have my devotions this week? Check the box. Have I been to church? Check the box. Have I not lied? Check the box. Have I not murdered someone? Check the box. You want to be more spiritual? Get more boxes. And Christianity becomes a dead thing. And Paul's saying to these Galatians, where these Judaizers have come in and said, we've got boxes for you to check and you'll be more spiritual. Paul's saying, that's never going to be the way that you're going to have the life of God. The Judaizers wanted to reduce the Galatian believers 
from spirit-empowered lives to powerless box-checking law keepers. From a Jesus-is-enough life-giving gospel to a Jesus-plus-works death-producing message. See, Paul is fighting for the soul of the Galatian churches. Chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Just like Paul rebuked Peter, he now rebukes the Galatians. Um, Can you hear the voice of an exasperated father in those words? My dad sometimes used to say to me, you knucklehead, what were you thinking? (laughs) That's kind of what Paul's saying. What were you thinking? Who has bewitched you like like a snake uh, mesmerizes a person? Who's come along and mesmerized you that, that you um, are embracing a doctrine that ultimately nullifies the grace of God and declared the death of Christ as unnecessarily irrational? Needless. How did you get to that? He says Christ was portrayed as crucified before you. And this word... Pro, um, Portrayed is a, is a Greek word for to publicly announce or, or to put on a, on a bill and post in a public place. Have you ever been to a doctor's office and you see things posted that the government requires that they post because it's so important? Well, Paul says, I told you that the death of Jesus Christ was so important that when he was crucified, you were crucified with him. You died to the law. A new door of life opened for you because Christ, through his spirit, comes to live within you. How could you go back to this other? And so he's going to ask four questions to him because he, he says they're without excuse. They knew the truth, but their eyes had been diverted from the cross to the law. So Paul now is going to call the Galatians to look back and remember their spiritual beginnings, to focus their attention on what was essential and help guard them against being led astray. And so he asks them some questions. This is a good way to engage people. It's a good way to make them think without accusing them, but to bring out the truth as they think it through. Uh, I go to a camp in Kansas, and for years there was a brother there by the name of uh, Wayne Bird. And Wayne Bird uh, was in charge of discipline. And Wayne Bird's way of doing discipline when someone had broken the rules and were sent to Wayne is Wayne would just start asking them questions. You came here to serve the Lord Jesus. We're so excited to have you here. Now, can you tell me how, in your thought of serving Jesus, Doing this action fits in with that. Kids hated it. I remember seeing a kid walking across the grounds, his shoulders slumped forward, and he was 
going very slowly. And I said, what's wrong? He says, I'm going to have a weighing talk. I wish they would just beat me instead. <laughs> and I'm sure the, the Galatians are going to feel that way when, when Paul's done. But Paul asks four questions of them. The first one is found in um, verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you receive the Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one that seals us so that we'll safely get to heaven. The Holy Spirit is the earnest of our salvation. When did you get the Holy Spirit? Was it at the moment you heard and put your faith in the Lord Jesus? Or did God wait until you kind of proved yourself by, by doing some works of the law? Is it a gift from God or is it a reward for living, a God, for living uh, this law-keeping life? Well, they all knew. They received the Spirit of God the moment they trusted the Lord Jesus, just like Cornelius. Uh, it's clear uh, throughout all the scriptures. Then in verse 3, he asks a second question. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? How will you be sanctified? How will you become spiritually mature? The Judaizer said keeping the law would aid them in their spiritual lives. And Paul says, is that true? No, he's going to point out in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh and the spirit are in, in, in opposition to one another. There's no way that having been given new life by the spirit of God, that you would grow in that new life by the flesh. How foolish to think that a system that couldn't bring justification to sinners could bring Christ-likeness to believers. His third question, verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain if it was indeed in vain? The sharing of the gospel in Galatia was marked by suffering. Paul and Barnabas Suffered a great deal. They were mistreated. They were driven out. Uh, Paul was stoned and left for dead. In fact, at the very end of Paul's life, in, in my Bible reading this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, do you remember the persecutions I had at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? To the end of his life, Paul remembers that as being some of the worst of his persecution. They saw Paul and Barnabas suffer. Later, when they came back through all the churches, Paul said, listen, through much tribulation, we will enter the kingdom of God. If you hold true to Jesus Christ, there's going to be suffering for you. And now he says, was that all worthless? All the suffering that I've heard that you guys have suffered, was, was it needless? Well, if you... If you change from, from the message that Christ alone is enough to the works of the law, since a lot of the, the, the persecution came from the Jews, then it was. But he says, I don't believe it. He, that last little phrase there where he says, if indeed 
It was in vain. Paul says, I'm unwilling to believe that that suffering was in vain. And then his fourth question in verse 5. So then does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? On what basis did God provide the spirit and work miracles among you? Paul and Barnabas did miracles. It says they did signs and wonders. They healed a lame man. They saw them do miracles. The the Galatians who received Christ saw the, the miracle of changed lives. Some of them received spiritual gifts, abilities they didn't have before. And perhaps God even did some miracles through them. We don't know. But he said, hey, where did, where did that come from? It came from the one who gave the spirit. Now, did he do that when you began lining up with the law and checking all the boxes? Or did he do that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ? And, of course, the answer to every one of these is clear. The Galatians the Galatian believers' own experience showed them that the works of the law had no power to bring about their justification or sanctification. Only faith in Christ could. Your own experience. Look back on your own experience. When did the blessings of God came? They came as a gift when I received Christ. Did they come when you began checking all the boxes? No. He says, I want you to even look farther back. We're going to go to the example of Abraham, verse, verses 6 through 9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. How was Abraham justified? Paul quotes Genesis 15, 2. God said, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, okay, I know I'm going to have a son. God took him out and said, look at all the stars. Your descendants are going to be like these stars. And Abraham believed the promise of God. And God said, you're righteous in my sight. It was by faith. Abraham was reckoned righteous with God by faith. Verse 7. Therefore, to be sure, it is, uh, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of of Abraham. How may others enjoy the righteousness which God reckoned to Abraham? Well, by becoming his spiritual descendants by faith. The true sons of Abraham are those who share his faith. In John 8, 39, to the Jews who, who said to the Lord Jesus, Abraham is our father, Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Abraham loved me, love my day. You are the children of your father, the devil. Who's the real descendants of Abraham? The, the real spiritual descendants of Abraham? Well, it's those who have been declared righteous by faith, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And he goes on in verse 8, saying this is in harmony with the testimony of Scripture. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel or the good news beforehand to Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed in you. Paul quotes um, Genesis 12, 3. All the nations will be blessed in you, anticipating the good news of justification by faith through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, and his death on the cross. That this blessing that, that was going to come through Abraham would affect Gentiles as well. And then he says, verse 9, so then, those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. The provision is available to all nations. All nations will be blessed in Abraham. The provision's been made for all. Only those who receive Jesus Christ by faith receive the blessing of justification by faith. You can be sitting here. You can have sat in a church your whole life and be without the blessing of justification by faith. It comes when it did for the Galatians, when they heard we're sinners separated from God by our sin, helpless to rectify the situation with no hope of anything we can provide, and God sent a Savior. And Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross, satisfying the judgment of God's righteous law. And to all who put faith in Jesus Christ, he forgives their sin, declares them righteous. But you have to receive Christ as a sinner who needs a Savior. And so Paul says, look back to your own experience. Look at Abraham's experience, the father, the spiritual father of all who are of faith. That was his experience. Well, what's wrong with the law? And so he talks about the curse of the law, verses 10 through 12. For as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In contrast to the blessing received by faith, where we're declared righteous by God, the law cannot cannot justify, it can only condemn, bringing a curse. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, showing that the law demands perfection and curses anyone who fails. In my Old Testament reading this morning in in Jeremiah 26, verse 6, God talks about the failure of the Jews and of Jerusalem to keep his law. And so he says, I'm going to bring judgment and destroy this place. And he says, and this city will be a curse. Where is it here? Will be a curse to all the nations of the earth. When... When the nations come by and they see what I I allowed to happen to Jerusalem, they're going to say, this city was cursed by God. (laughs) This wasn't just that the Babylonians came and destroyed it. This city was cursed by God. And he says, listen, if you want to, 
If you want to do works of the law, if that's what you're putting your trust in, you better understand you have to do it perfectly. In fact, he says, in the dispensation of the law in the Old Testament, now that no one, verse 11, is justified by law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. And here Paul quotes um, Habakkuk um, 2.4, where he says, listen, even back when the law had been given and Israel was under the covenant of the law, that didn't save. Faith saved. The just will live by faith. Verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law and faith are mutually exclusive. The law demands doing where faith receives as a gift what God has already done. The law demands perfect performance, which is not achievable, leading to condemnation and a curse. So what's God's answer? The blessing through Christ. Finally, Paul said, take a look at your own spiritual experience. Take a look at Abraham. Look back at Abraham. Look back at the law and what the scriptures say about the law. Now, look again at the cross. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He says, Christ not only causes us to be declared righteous, but he, he redeems us from the curse of the law. There's hope, not in our efforts, but in Christ. Christ redeemed. He paid the ransom for a condemned person from the curse of the broken law. The word us probably primarily re refers to the Jews who were under the provisions of the Mosaic law, but it ultimately comes down on everyone who says, I'm going to keep the law, and that's going to make me acceptable to God. If you choose that course of action, and you don't keep it perfectly, you're under a curse that you can't get out from under. But Jesus can help you. How, can he, how did Christ do this? Notice what it says, having become a curse for us. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In Old Testament times, enemies of Israel and, and criminals, after they died, were either hung or impaled on a, on a stake or on, on, in a tree. That was to show that while they had suffered the, the judgment of Israel, they really were under the judgment of God. In fact, uh, God commanded that you didn't leave their bodies hanging on the tree overnight lest the land become defiled. When Jesus Christ was crucified, and one of the things that made it so hard for Jews to, to believe that Jesus was the Messiah was their Messiah was hanging on a tree. Anybody who passed by seeing those three men on the tree would say, those men are cursed of God. How could the Messiah be cursed of God? 
And it wasn't until they understand that he was bearing their curse that they could see it. Isaiah 53.4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. When Jesus Christ was hanging on the tree, he not only bore our sins, he bore the curse that should have been for all those who should have kept the law. And so he took our curse. And so Paul ends it in verse 14, in order that God had two purposes uh, that Paul wants to highlight in Christ's redemptive work, in order that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The first is that we who were Gentiles, who were outside Israel, without God, without hope in the world, outside the commonwealth of Israel, some verses that were read this morning in the breaking of bread, we might get the justification by faith, this promise that came to Abraham. And, and Christ supplied that. And then, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit by faith, so that all who believe might receive the promise of the Spirit of God coming to dwell inside them by faith. And so Paul says to them, look back, see your own salvation. See Abraham's salvation. See what happens if you try to keep the law. Not only are you condemned, you're under curse. See what the cross of Christ did. Take another look at the cross. Because both being declared righteous in the sight of God and being brought to spiritual maturity, sanctification, are by faith. And so we have this little summary. Paul says, Jesus is enough. If you want to add works, if you want to put your trust in works, you're going to be condemned and you're going to be under a curse. If you come to Christ and you put your trust in Christ, God declares you righteous forever and you enjoy the blessings of God. Where are you? Where are you? I thought about having put some trash cans at, at each of the doors and uh, saying to all of us who are believers, if you're falling into that trap of, of having that little list to check boxes, when you walk out the door, throw your list in the garbage. And every time you see a trash can, make sure that list isn't back in your hand. Because the flesh constantly wants to put that little checklist in your hand. The way we get the life that Christ has bought for us on the cross is we hear the Lord Jesus saying to us, follow me. We trust his promises and his help and we follow him. Not checking boxes. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we, we just thank you. Paul's in a battle to save the very soul of a church from powerless lives. And 
uh, a death-giving gospel. And Lord, that battle continues to the present day. Help us hear our Lord's voice calling us, trust me, follow me. And may we do so. If there's someone here, and Lord, they've, uh, they're checking boxes frantically, trying to please you, may they see the work of Christ has done all the work. They simply need to come and take his gift of eternal salvation. Open their eyes to the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.